Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome to episode three of Coaching Inside the Box. We are so excited to have you today um, listen and, and, and follow along with us. Specifically, guys, we're talking solutions today, and we've had a really great run of Coaching Inside the Box uh, and great episodes and great content. And I've received, I think all of us have received really great feedback from those that are following along. And we're really excited to bring to the table and spend quite a bit of time talking about something that we've invested a ton of time to. Um, Andy, over the last 40 years, uh, Philippe, over the last five, and and me over the last 10 in terms of developing environments to help us manufacture that creativity um, and create as a, a talent hotbed here in, in our hometown of Kansas City. And so with that, with that in mind, we're going to kind of talk about that. But I've got to remind you guys again, please do not forget, we really want to continue to grow this podcast and grow our audience. And it could not help us more. Uh, there's nothing that could help us more than if you took just a moment and rate and give us a review um, wherever you listen to this podcast. It helps other people find us, um, and we would be uh, forever grateful. Um, with that said, let's let's talk a little bit about um, about kind of our solution um, and 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 how we've gotten to create some of these solutions that we have here in Kansas City, um, concrete jungles in the favelas of Brazil, um, Ashington, England, um, uh, different hardscapes and, and and hard urban areas that have a lot of fast surface all throughout Europe. Um, Andy, those have always been something that you've talked about. I've known you now for 30 years, and this has always been fast, intense, rebound surfaces. It's something that has, has forever been a part of what you talk about. Can you can you tell us or connect for us, um, it, it has, has that background of great players and the environments that they've grown up in, has that been what has connected you or been kind of the impetus or the genesis for you training players, training me the way that you did? Yeah, you know, uh, the environment that the great players grew up in is is weirdly similar. It doesn't matter whether it's Johan Cruyff from, you know, Amsterdam. He grew up in the shadow of the Ajax ground. And the city that he grew up in, you know, if translated from Dutch to English, means concrete city, literally. You know, so, uh, you know, he grew up surrounded by walls. And he talks about how he used walls and curbs to constantly beat on the ball. In the last podcast, uh, we had that quote about uh, about from Ashington. Ashington, yeah, from yeah. Sissy. Yeah, from Bobby and Jackie Charlton's mom talking about how Bobby used to bang the wall ball against the wall endlessly, hour on hour. You know, just and and that's why he scored that incredible goal for England against Mexico in the World Cup in 1966. Is you know he had a tennis ball and he just banged a tennis ball. As she said specifically, he had two balls: a tennis ball or a small rubber ball, and he banged that ball or those balls against the wall. And of course, when you're working with a ball that small, you have to be precise. So when you move up to a size five soccer ball, then you you can't help but be way more accurate because you're having to focus on a millimeter on the tennis ball, you know, where it's a square inch on the so on the on the you know the conventional soccer much ball. bigger margin for error. Exactly. Yeah. So you you work in tighter circumstances, and that's what you get. And Paul Gardner, the famous columnist with Soccer America, you know, wrote about Marco Echeverri, you know, when he played for DC United, and he talked about how he grew up in the Tauichi Academy in Bolivia. Yeah. 
you know, and talked about how they always use small balls in the Taoichi Academy and they pumped them up so that they were like ping pong balls, you know, and they reacted so incredibly fast that you had to be incredibly fast thinker, you know, and had to have, you know, such good skills to deal with these, these balls. And they, their fields were, you know, caked, hard you know, fields, and apparently these balls used to explode everywhere off of, you know, the lumps and bumps on these caked hard fields, you know, and so everything they did was designed to be faster than, you know, your normal training environment. Yeah, yeah, and, and we're going to talk about the Taoichi Academy later in this in this episode, but, uh, and connect it and compare it to some of the, the spaces that, that are created for us and our kids to train in the United States. Philippe, I want to bring you into this conversation. So, so this should come as no surprise to our audience. The three of us coached together in the same club. Um, and Philippe, when you came to Kansas City, initially it was to play university soccer. At the end of your university playing career, you decided to get into coaching. Um, and, and you had a plethora of options, uh, presumably, of clubs to coach with. Why did you choose us? Um, I think the fact that made me choose uh, the Legends Club was uh, that it was similar to what I've um, lived when I was a kid in Brazil. Um, uh, when I remember the first time I came here and I saw kids doing wall ball, just banging the ball against the wall, and I was like, that's all I did growing up. I had like a garage. I actually told Andy this story a few weeks ago. Uh, my parents, uh, my family had a house uh, that was like, an hour away from, from Rio, it's in the mountains. And I had like this three feet wall with a, kind of a ramp on top of it and trees at the end. And I would hit the ball into that wall and it was only three feet so I needed to keep it low because if I hit it high enough, the ball would roll up and then it would come back down. But sometimes if I hit it too high, it would get stuck in the trees and I would have to go up there, walk and, and retrieve it. So having that system for me uh, of hitting the ball, having to hit it low and the ball coming back to me, it's actually something that really helped into my game. Like I, the best thing that I did as a soccer player was uh, shoot from outside of the box from long distance. And I was good at keeping the ball low and a lot of... Uh, the ball, the goals that I scored were uh, low shots, really hard, uh, because if you can shoot it low, if, even if you miss it a little bit and it goes up a little bit, it's never going to go over the bar. So uh, just things, similarities like that um, was something that really attracted me to this club. And also this philosophy of freedom, uh, free play, being skillful and all that was um, something that really uh, made me appreciate what this club does and yeah, it was similar to what I uh, lived when I was a kid. And I think that's the right way to train, especially the younger kids. Yeah. So, so Andy, I want to go back to you because I want to talk, and this is maybe, this, this is going to be a fun episode because I think we're going to talk about the evolution of, of, of the coaching that you've done and now others participate in, such as Philippe and I, in the United States. And when you first started coaching in the United States, and, 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 and you've talked in previous episodes about Anson Dorrance and, and his influence on you and helping, to, helping you to determine that, that deceptive dribbling and goal scoring was what you were going to focus on, what, what types of field surfaces or field environments did you seek to put your players in to train them? Well, you know, just like everybody, I started off in a very conventional mode, you know, and, you know, I was 16 when I first started coaching, you know, which is, you know, a, a, another story about how, 
you know, you get lucky sometimes. And uh, I lived on the same street as the chairman of the Quarry Rovers Boys Club, Frank Yateman. And, you know, he used to stop by and chat. You know, my dad was a was a uh, well-known local soccer player. And and uh, and so when I was about 16, I got to play semi-pro for Oxford uh, City. Uh, and, um, you know, I was getting my name in the paper and, and things of that nature. And so one day I was walking up the street and, and Frank accosted me outside his home. And he said, uh, yeah, young Andy said, uh, we've got an under eight team at Quarry that needs to be coached, you know, and you'd be perfect. You know, you've got a name in the community now. And, you know, so, you, you know, you've got instant respect and just wondering if you could spare some time, you know, during the midweek and on Saturday mornings to coach these kids. And as, as much as I really didn't want to do it as a 16 year old, I felt obligated because that was the club that had given me so much of my opportunity. And so I, I agreed to jump in and start coaching, but I coached in a very conventional manner. I, you know, I didn't have the, you know, this, you know, any background and experience. And so I coached the way that I'd been coached, if that makes sense. And I think that's the way that most of us do, you know, and, it, but it, it's been a gradual process of evolution from age 16 until 62. Now that's 46 years you know and you know over that period of time i've realized exactly what's holding you know english soccer back you know the us soccer back and you know and have endeavored to change every little thing about what i've done as a coach that needed to be changed in order to you know give these kids the brave creative leadership for life which is the most important thing but obviously make them that player that one player that diego maradona that pele you know, that, that individual that can take the ball by the horns and wrestle it to the ground, make the big play in life. And, and so, but, but it's a gradual process and, and people just believe that what they've been brought up with is the way to go. And if you don't mind me telling you another story, because, you know, this is an illustration of how we're powerfully bound to where we come from. But, uh, you know, when I was a little kid, my dad decided that he was going to buy the house next door and turn it into a boarding house. And that my mom, instead of being a car clean, uh, a car factory cleaner, could actually run the boarding house. She, she was a good cook and, you know, she kept the house nice and clean and make a good bed. And, and so her job was to run the boarding house. And, and so we had a boarding house that was literally next door to the house we lived in with a driveway separating the boarding house and our house. And we had lodgers from all over the world because this was Oxford University, you know, country. This was where... You know, we were just a couple of miles away from the university. And so we had boarders from every single country you can imagine. You know, this is the center of the, you know, the British area, you know, England, the British Empire, rather. And, and so we had all of these people coming in from all over the world. And, you know, one of them taught me to play chess when I was a little kid. You know, and so from that point onwards, whenever we had a new lodger, I'd greet the lodger at the, the front door with my chess, you know, set in hand. You know, and my first question to the lodger was, do you play chess? You know, and so, you know, that was the environment I grew up in. So, so fast forward here, and uh, I've been playing chess, you know, literally every night after the light went out and I couldn't play soccer anymore. I'd go indoors, you know, remember in these days there was four TV channels. And so there was nothing to do because, you know, at, you know, seven, eight, nine at night, there was no kids programs on, you know. And so, you know, I would badger the lodgers until they played chess with me. And, and so... Um, so fast forward now to I'm, I'm in the hospital, I've had a knee operation and, you know, a guy in the next bed, you know, had also had an operation and, you know, and he, he looked across at me and he said, uh, he, he was one of these posh guys. He said, hey, old man, you know, uh, yeah, you know, uh, would you care for a game of chess, old boy? 
you know, and, and I said, sure, I'd love to play chess, you know, break out the pieces. And so we played and, you know, I can't remember the last time I had a game that good because I got to be really good at the game and, and, and so I was pretty successful against the lodgers. And, and it went right down to the wire and with about the last move of the game, you know, I, I, I beat him, you know, and he got really angry. So, so I'm looking at him, that's strange, it's a game of chess, you know, and, and so, and he said, would you care to play again? And, and so we, you know, we played again and the same thing happened again. It was a great game, it went right down to the wire and I beat him again, you know, and he was, you know, really, really upset. And I'm looking at him like, you know, yeah, a game of soccer matters, you know, and, you know, and, but this is a game of chess. This is something I've only ever done for fun, you know, and, and I said, excuse me, I said, you don't mind me asking, but why are you getting so upset? And he said, well, old boy, he said, uh, I'm the Oxford University chess captain. <laughs> and, and I've since reflected on that many times because, you know, I, yes, I had coaching. I had really good coaching because some of these lodgers were good chess players. And they showed me the classic opening and they showed me lots of nuances of the game. So I had coaches that I basically lived with for a while that taught me how to play chess. You know, and my environment was one where, you know, I, I was done with soccer at maybe, you know, a you know, time of year. You know, it could be five in the winter. It could be seven or eight at, at night and more in the summer. You know, but I was done with, you know, anything that I could do outdoors. There was nothing good to do indoors. So before I went to bed, I always played chess, you know, with one of the lodges. And, and so I was in this environment where I played probably two, three hours a night, you know, when I was growing up. And I became good and I never played competitive chess. You know, and, and I was looking through some old papers the other day and, and, you know, in my school, and it had me down as playing, you know, my school didn't play soccer. It was one of the, you know, upper class schools that didn't play soccer. And I got a scholarship to go there because I was a blue collar kid. Um, but I played school tennis. I ran cross country. You know, I was state 800 meter champion. Um, I played rugby for the school. I played badminton for the, for the school. I played everything apart from on the list um, cricket. I played field hockey for the school. Uh, cricket and basketball. They were the two things that I didn't play for the school. You know, and the one thing that was glaring by his absence was I didn't play chess. But I did play chess. And apparently I was pretty good at it, but I never ever knew I was that good at it. You know, and so it was purely environment. And, and if we look back at Ashington and Brazil in those previous episodes, we talk a lot about environment, how environment creates it. And so coming back to the original question, Andy, I asked, can you describe the environment that you created for your players in the late 80s, 90s uh, for them to train in? Right. I remember specifically part of the year we trained indoor, part of the year we trained outdoor. What did, what do those fields fields look like? Absolutely. And, and so, you know, I I'd focused on coaching the moves even back in England before I came over because you know I like the creative part of the game um, but you know I came over to the States to run an indoor soccer facility on Long Island and that was my first exposure to Wolves you know it was an old MISL style facility um, that the, you know the owner was the owner of the New York Arrows and the Kansas City Comets at the time uh, which is how I came to Kansas City in the, in the end. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I started to get an you know, exposure to, there was a smaller field in our facility as well as one regulation size MISL field. Uh, and so I started to get exposure to, you know, how quick the game was on both walled fields. 
And I fell in love with it because the ball didn't get out of the field. And so there was no wasted time. There was no breaks. And it was all, you know, really fast action. You know, then I came to Kansas City and, you know, we built uh, two big fields and one smaller field in the facility. And I ran that facility for five years and used the indoor environment to get as much training as I could in for the players that came in and signed up for our camps and our clinics. And, you know, so I, I used the walls a lot because we had a lot of walls, you know, for rebounding shooting drills because we could get 10 times as many shots, you know, rebounding against walls as we could shooting against an outdoor goal and missing and retrieving the ball from the net and wasting all that time in ball retrieval, you know. And so, so I, you know, I, I started and at the same time, I started uh, a company called British Soccer Camps Challenger Sports is what it is now. And it became the largest camp company in the world eventually. Um, so, you know, we've got all this experience of training kids. And then five years in, I was becoming an administrator and I quit because I wanted to coach. And that's when I started the Legends Club. Um, but in the early days of the Legends, I had this special in with the indoor facility. And so we immediately, as soon as it got cold and dark in, you know, late October, start of November, we switched to indoors and we stayed indoors for five months. And we rented the small practice field at All-American. And so uh, I used the walls then with you specifically and a lot of other players um, as rebound surfaces because we either had to do line drills towards a goal at one end of the field or we could have 18 players banging the ball against the wall simultaneously with all of the chaos that ensued. It was, it was wall ball. We all had our own lane, right? And right. me versus another player. And it was it was two-touch games. You had a, a preparation touch in your shot. And or you it, could take it first time. Or you could take it first time. Right. And every every shot had to be directly after the preparation touch. I think we had one one thousand, two one thousand before we could get our shot off. Every shot had to be toe down, ankle locked, land on your shooting foot, and all these games were simultaneous next to each other. And so inevitably, a ball would go a bit to the right, and I'd have to put it around a player that was playing in the lane to my right. And then at the end of every round, three or four minutes, the winner moved up. And the loser stayed where they were all the way till we got to the championship lane. And the loser in the championship lane went all the way back down to the bottom and to work their way up. And, and to be honest, this shouldn't come as a surprise to those of you guys that watched the first episode. I'm, I'm a pretty poor finisher. Uh, and so I always played at the bottom of the lanes, but still found it to be enormously competitive. Um, and it fed that competitive gene for me. And while I wasn't a great finisher, I could strike a ball really well because we spent so much time ball striking um, through that process. Now, outdoor, outdoor though, in those days, Andy, we always trained. Um, I remember most of the time we trained uh, at, at, at the Sprint campus and there was literally no grass on the field. Um, and the goals were these giant aluminum goals that were, I don't know, 20 feet apart. I could score from anywhere on the field. Well, I couldn't, but the good finishers <laughs> on the team could. Uh, and Andy, why did you choose that type of space to train us in in the early days? Well, I tried to convert the club to playing and training indoors year round. Sure. That, that actually got uh, knocked, knocked down by the parents. They wanted to go outdoors. And so I abandoned that effort, you know, which these days we, we train. I train my teams totally indoors year round. And it's caused a massive spike in their ability. But uh, the, the parents, you know, slapped me down. And this was my only form of income. So, you know, I couldn't take on all my parents, you know, because... <laughs> You know, five daughters to feed and, you know, a family to look after. So, um, so you know, I, I had to back down. And so, you know, we went indoors during the winter, you know, and the parents were okay with that because out of necessity, you know. But, you know, we had this, you know, this area, you remember, the Sprint Campus. And, you know, it was lovely. I mean, the, the grass was superb, you know, and, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful space for about a week. 
after I rented it. <laughs> we ran the horses on it for year after year after year. We burned every blade of grass, as you know, because you played in it, you know. And so, you know, it would get very quickly muddy, you know, if we had a downpour, you know, we'd play through the mud and, and, uh, and it would get during the middle of the summer, you know, when the drought was on, it would get total dust bowl, you know. And, but the beauty was the ball ran smooth. Yep. You know, because, you know, there wasn't any lumps and bumps, and, you know, clumps of grass because there wasn't any grass. <laughs> and, and so, 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 and the guy that used to keep this place, you know, pristine, he just used to shake his head at me because he had all the rest of this area that was, was grassy and it was, it was good looking, you know, and this one area where we had our goals and the goals were only 22 yards apart. Yeah, yeah. You know, this one area where we had our goals was, was Dust Bowl territory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you remember that? The, yeah, you'd get, a, you'd get into the second round of 1v1s and dust would just hang over the entire field to where you could literally taste it in your mouth as you were sprinting across the field. We laugh about it, but like it was that, that was character building. And, and I remember specifically always training with the team two years older than us. Um, uh, and, and we would have two different matrices, right? My team would play 1v1s against my team and they would play 1v1s against their team or 2v2s, wherever we were in the, in the curriculum. And I remember taking shots from these guys where I'm just running, sprinting after the guy that I'm marking, trying to keep him from scoring, and then just getting blindsided by one of their players who was sprinting across the field in another direction, who was twice my size and just literally a full-on man, and falling to the ground, you know, you know, mouthful of dirt, and then having to get back up and continue on. And it was a, a massive character builder um, uh, in addition to the, the, you know, the, the bats in the cave radar chaos that ensued on the, on the pitch. Right, right. It, it was total, absolute anarchy. But here's the thing. It wasn't so difficult that everybody fell apart because, you know, remember, you, you'd had years and years of this training up until that point. Mm -hmm. So you were totally capable of handling that it was manageable. chaos. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, well, and this is the, the thing is that um, the, all of the, the greatest researchers in world history, theory of evolution, evolution, going back to Darwin, but, you know, all of the people that have related evolution to sports development, you know, every single, um, you know, uh, genius in any single environment has pushed the edge of chaos in order to get where they are. You know, and you can go back into the history of you know, some of the all-time greats. You know, you know Mozart. You know, his dad was a music teacher. You know, and you know, started teaching him. You know, when he was a tiny kid. You know, to um, you know to write his own music, etc. And he was terrible, apparently, on the front end. You know, Tiger Woods. You know, Earl Woods pushed. You know, Tiger into you know when he was two, when he was three, into being a golfer. You know, and so you know, obviously, when you, a kid you know picks up a shortened golf club at age two, it's going to be awful. So they constantly push the edge of chaos. Richard Williams with with Venus and Serena, you know, took them out and pushed the edge of chaos with those two, pushing them all the time, getting them to go where they hadn't gone before, because the greatest. Uh, leaps in human development happen where you're uncomfortable, where there's lots of stimuli that you can't quite handle yet, you know, but it's there within your grasp if you really work at it. And so what we have to do is we have to create these small spaces where everybody in the small spaces are fighting for the ball, are using skill, you know, doing incredible things, you know, and where Philippe is from in Rio, in Brazil. Well, you talk about it, you know, the, the, the games, you know, you know, they must have been crowded, right? Yeah, I'm, I remember every time we would get to school, we would get like 30 minutes early and we would like someone would bring like either a tennis ball or like we would wrap our socks and make like a sock ball. 
and it was literally everyone on the field. So it was like 20 aside. It was ridiculous, like a futsal court and 20 on each team, like 40 kids on the court. It was literally, it would start with five, but then people would come in and, oh, you're on this team, you're on this team. And we would play until uh, the professor had to drag us to class. But it was like that, it was crowded. And here's the funny thing, when you're playing with 20 people on each team, we will pass the ball. No, you just dribble. <laughs> if you pass the ball, you're never going to touch that ball again. So <laughs> literally everyone was a ball hog and it was understandable because, I mean, sometimes you would try to steal the ball from your own teammate because you wanted it, yeah, yeah, you know, because yeah, yeah. otherwise you wouldn't have it. And those are the games that, like, I remember vividly as a kid. Like, just, it was just fun. Like, you just played and there was no score there wasn't anything but then we would get a class all sweaty go get into the air conditioner my mom would go crazy because i would always get sick after that <laughs> and just making fun of each other like oh i magged you oh i scored that goal blah 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 no one cared about the score or anything yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's those tight spaces everybody's a ball yeah. hog and that's why i love 1v1 as a centerpiece for the way that we train our kids you know our kids spend every practice doing 1v1s for most of their youth career and and when you're playing 1v1s you're a ball hog because you got no one else to pass to right you get exactly. to spend all of that time improving yourself but but, um, but you know philippe's environment was 20 versus 20 and that's a problem sure because sure, sure. in that environment philippe was obviously one of the better players so he got lots of ball but, you know, imagine being the kid that can't walk and chew gum in sure. that environment. That kid doesn't get any ball. So, you know, the, the rich grow richer, the poor grow poorer in that type of environment, which is not what we do. You know, we play lots of one-on-ones, lots of two-on-twos, you know, but we throw them all into the same small field. So we get the chaos. We get the chaos. Yep. Bats in a cave, you know, this is absolutely crazy, you know, but they love it because, you know... They've got a ball next to them. They've got a ball, they've got opponents, you know, they can dribble, they can shoot, you know, yep. and, and of course in two-on-two, you know, there's a player to pass to, yep. you know, and that does happen and it happens quite significantly, you know, but it, it's how do we get the best of one environment you know, you know, the willingness to take players on and you're not going to give the ball up because you're not going to get it back. But how do we, you know, change that environment so we're getting the chaos, sure. but we also get the ball touches, you know, and we've solved that here at the Legends Club. Yeah, and we're going to spend, we're going to, I think we'll have an entire episode on 1v1s and an entire episode on 2v2 because there's so much to get into. But I really want to talk environment today and I want to connect us to the title of this podcast, right? What can we learn from table tennis? And so let me fast forward, right? Well, let me first connect and then fast forward. So in the late 90s, Andy, I remember coaching for uh, for you. I was 17 or 18 or whatever, right? Finishing my, my playing career at Legends before I went off to college. And I remember going to the Roland Park Dome. And the Roland Park Dome was where the Legends practiced indoor. And for those of you guys that are home and, and don't know what the Roland Park Dome is, it's just a giant dome with sport court on it. We created numerous, maybe four small 1v1 fields where the kids could play 1v1, but there were no walls. It was a dome of a bubble, right? So you couldn't get any rebound. And that's where we trained. And, and it wasn't great for creating uh, de deceptive dribblers. It wasn't create great for creating goal scorers. And we transitioned in 2008-2009 and released our own uh, warehouse. Right. Um, and I was a part of that because I'd come back from college. I was a part of the office at that point. And Andy, you would you'd lease that space in Mel off Melrose in Lenexa and, and, and specific, I don't know, maybe 4,000 square feet, something like that. And we built a boarded field that was unique and then it had squared corners. And then behind it, there was a little bit of space. And so you walled off that space and turfed it. Can you describe what that walled off turf space was and what it looked like and what your um, inspiration was for it? 
Well, you know, and we lost the Roland Park Dome contract because they wanted to use it for other sports. Oh, okay. So, you know, I was in a situation where I was, you know, I was, it's like COVID-19, you know, we've developed a great dribbling program during COVID-19 with videos and it's just gone gangbusters, you know, so... You know, in, uh, in in the midst of, of uh, winter, you find in yourself an invincible th- summer, the, you know, is the great quote that I love. You know, and so, you know, I looked at my options. I decided, you know, after having looked at this for decades, I decided I'm going to actually create my own custom designed, you know, indoor facility. And as you said, you know, there was enough room for, you know, one uh, small boarded soccer field, which was great, you know, and we could accommodate the teams in the club at that point in time. Of course, the club's exploded since then. Um, But, you know, and there was just this one little space left. and, And, you know, and so... I had the extra boards and I ordered the extra steel work and I put in this long box soccer court. And, and we played there. You and I played yeah, against yeah, each yeah. other. And, yeah. you know, I was still young enough to kick a ball around in those days. We called it soccer squash, right? Yeah, and right. there was zero... I mean, you had talked about in, in maybe the 80s when you first came over, all the, all the British guys that were here had access through your work to the racket, racket club, but you didn't play much squash or racquetball. Instead, you took a soccer ball and banged it against the racquetball walls, right? Right, right. And it, it, it did wonders for my personal ball striking. Yeah. Which, which had always been a weakness of mine because I never had that growing up. And that was an inspiration for you. Right. Right. Okay. So, so what happened was, you know, the space was 32 by 12, you know, and, and I fell in love with, you know, this one box soccer court, you know, and, and it was fantastic when it, 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 everybody wanted to be on it playing, but, you know, we didn't have, you know, a, a, just enough of them to... You created a big line on the outside. Yeah, to make a, a, a whole heck of a lot of difference because we had this one court. So, so uh, it was highly in demand and, you know, and it was overutilized, you know, and uh, so... Uh, but remember the d- dimensions, because this is pretty important. It was 32 by 12, and we get into a loop where we think because, you know, that's the size we've been using, that's what we need. So, and remember that it was purely by coincidence that we made it 32 by 12, because that was the space left over yeah, yeah. after we'd put the big field in and the storage area. Yeah. You know, so, so we didn't have any more space, you know, to, to put any more courts into, because the, the whole thing was like 5,500 square foot, the whole facility, including the offices. So, so what... What happened was we then decided to upgrade to another facility because, you know, the, the, the club just exploded with this indoor facility. And so we upgraded to uh, another facility and we kept two at the same time. We had another facility that was 11,700 square feet. And, you know, it was enough for a big field, a smaller field. And only about four, you know, or five of these 32 by 12 box soccer courts, no matter how we configured them, we couldn't fit in any more than four or five, which, you know, could only handle maybe two thirds of a full team squad because the team squad was 18. So we really needed nine. And then, you know, I, you know, I don't know if something's working up there or, you know, somebody's just shining on me. But I was literally because I built these first two facilities with some help from parents. But I was primarily the person that built these first two facilities in there, you know, cutting wood and, you know, doing whatever it took to, you know, to, you know, create this this whole new environment. And, and so I'm just about to get started on the box soccer courts in the space that was left. We'd already built the big field and the small field. And at that, that point in time, the, the fates gave me a book, you know. And so I'm exhausted. I've been working, you know, 16 hours a day. And I go home and I can't sleep for whatever reason. And I, I just bought this book called, called Bounce by Matthew Syed. And I'm reading the book and I read about Desmond Douglas, 
the the great the greatest ever British table tennis player who built, beat world champions. You know, never actually won a world championship, but beat world champions because you know he was just that good. You know, and I'm reading Matthew Syed's interpretation of of Desmond Douglas's career and why he's that good. You know, because Syed is a writer in the mode of Daniel Coyle, you know, Anders Ericsson, Jeffrey Colvin. He quotes, he quotes Anders Ericsson in the book. Right, yeah. exactly. And, and so I'm reading about Desmond Douglas, and Matthew Syed remembers that, because uh, Matthew Syed was an English national table tennis you know, team player, so he was a great player. And so Syed played with Desmond Douglas for years before he was a writer. He's a writer for the, the Times in London, you know, and of course an author, um, but writes about sport-related situations, you know, skill acquisition and you know, as an out-of-the-box way of looking at things. And, and so he talks about Desmond Douglas and, and, you know, and how they were all at this National Training Centre in Reading, which is another great story because... You know, half of the British squad were actually from the area around this National Training Centre in, in Reading. And this National Training Centre wasn't designated as a National Training Centre until later. It was put together by a guy that, you know, had this vision and decided to literally, you know, build some old garages or turn some old garages into ta- table tennis, you know, hotbed. And he actually had half of the National Squad, you know, out of this Reading, this one street in Reading, you know, it was the base for half of the, the squad. We talk about, you know, British Isles, you know, 55, 60 million people, you know, and half of the squad came from this one area in Reading. You know, so this is an example of how he had it open 24 hours and he built this culture. And so these, these players became really, really good. And Syed was one of them. So they brought in to test the national squad and Desmond Douglas was the star of the squad. They brought in reaction time testers. And they found out that of all of the squad, Desmond Douglas had the slowest reactions. In fact, he mentions in the, in the book when, when the, the, the results were read, because Desmond was tested for his reactions, but the other players were too, the squad laughed at him. Like, oh, you, you must have done something wrong. Desmond is by far the quickest reaction on this team. Look how good he is. Right, right. Yeah. And, and they would think that because Desmond Douglas never strayed away from the edge of the table. He was this freak that literally could play belly up to the table, table tennis, which completely blew the minds of opponents from all over the world because they literally never faced a player that didn't back off and play revolving door table tennis, you know, where you just get it back and you get it back and wait for the opponent to make a mistake. Well, Douglas never did that. So, you know, he was playing, you know, a completely different game. He wasn't playing table tennis. You know, he was playing a completely different game to how everybody else played. So Syed is thinking back, you know, when he's writing the book, and he wrote the book, you know, many, many years, like two decades after they played together for England. And, and he thought to himself, you know, I wonder what happened with that test. And, you know, and let's look into, you know, Desmond's background and let's see if there's something else that explains why Desmond was such a good player. Before you go there, I want to connect the science to it because I really enjoyed reading Syed's perspective. But he talks about the, 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 the science of chunking and elite athletes have this ability to chunk information when they've done it over and over and over again in really small bits. And it gives them the ability to react to something before it happens. And Syed mentions that he's an elite table tennis player and he's, and he's now a journalist and he's, and he's playing against some all-star tennis player in a 
charity tennis thing, and he told the all-star tennis player to, to serve it as fast as you can at me, thinking, I am really good at reaction. Like, I am a very fast table tennis player. These giant tennis serves, I'm going to be able to rack to and at least get my racket to it. And he stood no chance at all. And it was because he hadn't spent all this time and, and developed the scientific ability to chunk that information right. through small nuances early, right? Yeah, that, it was against the, the I think he's got K-L-I-C-H, clique. You know, okay. who was the fastest server in, in professional tennis at the time. Yeah. You know, and he said he didn't even see the ball as it went past him, <laughs> you know. And, and, uh, and, and so, tennis is a slower reaction than table tennis. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and one of the things you just said was, uh, you know, that um, it was, you, you mentioned reaction. Well, um, the interesting thing about Desmond Douglas is it wasn't reaction, you know, because he had slow reactions, you know, and, and you know, so... Uh, what Douglas actually developed the ability to do, as Matthew Syed points out, is he became predictive. He didn't, he didn't react. So he knew from playing belly up table tennis to the table where the ball was going. If he hit this shot, you know, the likelihood was that the next shot would come back in a certain place. And, and so I, I read this and I said, look, I, I got to see this for myself. And, you know, the beauty of modern science, I was able to look up on YouTube Desmond Douglas and I was able to watch how he would hit the ball and before you know, the, the, the ball had even been struck by the opponent, he was already taking his bat to the next position, sorry, the next position, you know, and so he was getting ready for the receiving the next shot. And it was uncanny because the shot would come back to where his bat was. So he had been there so many times it became predictive, but what was it that made him so good? So Syed said, you know, there's got to be something at work here. So he drove up to Birmingham, England, where, you know, Desmond Douglas lived, and he sat down with Desmond. He said, look, tell me about your life, your career. Just, I want to listen to everything about what it was, you know, that, that made you this great table tennis player, because your reaction tests don't jive with the reality, the reality that we all saw of you playing such high-level table tennis, you know, and so... Syed said that the, the light bulb moment was when Douglas described how he learned to play the game. Because in the elementary school that he attended, they, at the end of the school day, they rolled out the desks to the side of the, the, the room. And they, they, they then, you know, got the table tennis and unfolded them, table tennis tables, unfolded them, you know, and the key line was there was this much space between the end of the table tennis table and the wall, you know, and side was, you know, stop, can you get, throw that one at me again? You know, that, you know, there was this much space between the end of the, so you couldn't back off. And Douglas was like, no, we couldn't back off. We had to play this belly up to the table tennis table style. And, and this is the environment and it's, you know, it's the aha moment, you know, and, you know, the environment created the man, you know, here's this slow reacting individual that was an absolute gym rat. So he, you know, was there from four o'clock in the afternoon until, you know, he had to leave because they closed the building. You know, winners stay on table tennis. And so he played thousands and thousands of hours of belly up to the table, table tennis, where you didn't have time to react. You had to start predicting, you know, and he had slow reactions anyway. So, you know, he became predictive. He knew from hundreds and hundreds of thousands of shots, if he did the shot here, it was coming back here. You know, and so, you know, and, and Syed was like, it all makes sense now. The slow reaction time test, you know, when you were the number one table tennis player in England matches up with your environment. And this is the power of the environment. And yet, 
What have we done here in Kansas City? Well, and that was the connection I was going to make, right? Is that, you know, we've spent a few episodes in a row talking about Ashington, England and talking about Brazil. And we as a soccer community, we all know who the best players ever or the best players in the world are. And we all know where they grow up. Yet, when we get an opportunity to create environments, we facepalm. We create Overland Park Soccer Complex. Let Philippe describe this. So Philippe came from the favelas of Rio. You know, and Philippe, what have we got in Kansas City that must have just blown your mind? <laughs> well, several outdoor complexes with like 12, 13, 15 outdoor fields, beautiful turf, everything. Yeah. I, re- I really remember my f- when I first got to Kansas City and um, for some reason, yeah, I think it was rainy, so our coach didn't want to, our field was a grass field, he didn't want to ruin our field. So he rented the OP soccer complex and I got there and I looked and I was like, oh my God, that does not exist in Brazil. Like if you go to a professional academy, uh, like Fluminense that I played, there were I think six or seven fields, but it's a closed academy. Like they don't rent out to anybody, like no one can enter, like parents cannot enter there. So like you don't have those fields in the city. I remember growing up like I didn't play outdoor because there wasn't an outdoor field around where I lived. I think the closest one that was we were able to actually play at was like 30 minutes away because all, all there was was futsal courts and little uh, turf fields. We didn't, have, we didn't have that. So it definitely blew my mind when I saw all that here. Yeah, and so like, <laughs> I mean, to talk again about like the problem that we have in our society is that, is that our coaches or our training methods, if we learn anything, we try to learn it from some professional academy who has already amassed all the talent, most talented players, and, and they really only it, it, it super start focusing with these kids at 13, 14, 15, 16, or in your case, 18, when you first showed up at the Fluminense yeah. Academy. They totally missed the boat. And one thing that I have to pe- point out is when I saw here, like, I think it was like U7, whatever, like really young kids playing on that 7v7 field. It looked like ants in a farm. Like <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. You see like six kids on the field plus the goalie, and the field is massive. It looks like there are acres there of space. Literally, there's no soccer ability involved. The fastest kid will kick the ball far and will run after it and will get there. There's no development. It's, it's useless. So, so what happens when you rent one of these fields? You know, I did. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I had my goals. You know, like when you played for me, you know, this was later after, you know, you'd gone off to college. Uh, and maybe you were back with a club at the time. But, you know, I'm out there with a bunch of 13, 14-year-old girls. And these girls are used to playing in the indoor facility and playing one versus one and, you know, and just rebounding and going for four minutes of every round. You know, just going, going, going. And, uh, and so I'm all excited, this beautiful facility, and I pull the goals into 22 yards apart, and inside 30 seconds, I had nobody on the field. Because, <laughs> I, I can picture it. <laughs> you know, and, and so, you know, these, these kids that have been used to shooting, shooting and hitting the boards and boards, ball coming back and just staying in the game and never taking a break, you know, they'd shoot, the ball would miss, you know, and one kid, they're not going to walk 40, 50 yards. You know, sorry, they're not going to run 40, 50 yards to retrieve a ball because when they get back, they'll be at an extreme disadvantage in the one-on-one because they'll be so tired. You know, and so, the, you know, the kid that's fetching the ball would go and fetch that ball at a snail's pace 
to conserve energy for when they got back and they wanted, you know, wanted to beat their opponent. So, you know, I'm inside a minute, I've got nobody on my field and there's a kid dawdling over here and a kid dawdling over there to retrieve a ball. And it was the worst practice of one versus ones I'd ever held because grass would hold the ball up. You know, we were on this field, there was a breeze blowing and if you hit but with the breeze behind you, the ball ran 60, 70, 80 yards through somebody else's practice on the other half of the field. And it was a total failure. And I dropped my rental immediately <laughs> after that one practice because I knew that it was going to be awful for repetition, touches, beating a player, taking shots, you know, learning how to defend, you know, everything that was such a fundamental, important thing to becoming a great player. And I resist as a coach now, I resist at almost all costs of training outside because I recognize how enormously inefficient outdoor training is when given the option to do indoor training. And, and uh, I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, I played against Ryan Kaufman, right? Ryan was a typical number nine, fantastic goal scorer, a teammate of mine that that played all the way through under Andy. Um, But, but Ryan wasn't the most athletic, not athletic, most fit kid on the team. And so when he'd get tired, he'd take a shot intentionally miss the goal. So I'd go chase after it and just wait and just recover. And he was, he was bright enough to do it. And so when we train in exclusively indoor with walls and nets around us, that, that removes that ability and it makes him work harder. It makes all the players work harder. But let's, let's connect this bounce. Because I remember when you called me, you were at the Miriam, the new, Mir- the, the new facility that we're building, the 11,000 square foot one. And you said, Andrew, I figured it out. We're going to make the box soccer courts smaller. And then you went on this, this, this monologue. I'm reading this book by Matthew Syed and Desmond Douglas, and, and, and it's called Bounce, and, and, and just so excited and, and to, to, to shrink the box soccer courts. And in, in shrinking the box soccer courts, improve the reaction and, and, or the predictive ability of our players and their ability to, to, to chunk this information scientifically so that they can hit it faster and, 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 more, uh, and get more reps in in a smaller amount of time. Do, do you remember the multi-page missive I sent you about the rationale behind all this? Because, uh, you know, I did a study. I did a quick study on the science behind it. And, you know, and I sent you an analysis because, you know, we've never been a dictatorship here. You know, we all have input to the decisions. You know, and I'm in the middle of building this darn thing, you know, and I've had this epiphany, but now I have to change everybody else's mind all at once. So in the middle of construction, you know, I shut down construction to write this persuasive missive about why we needed to create nine 12 by 20 box soccer courts instead of four or five 32 by 12. So we took a third off of the back. Is essentially what we did, and it, it went from a, a really narrow rectangle to a still rectangle, but had a much much more square feel to it. And what created as a result, as the kids would would bang the ball off the front wall, is it created a game in which they were taking balls from the side, they were taking balls from behind them, they were taking balls from the front wall, and it truly ref- and so not only did it improve the number of repetitions they would get in a, in, a, in a short amount of time, but it also improved the quality of the repetitions to make them more game-like because it's not the most common way that you hit a first-time finish in a game is either taking a through ball right into the box right or taking a ball from from the side across in right 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 and and the other thing that uh, was was interesting is that uh, about 60 percent of all goal scoring opportunities is from dropping or bouncing balls and with a 32 by 12 court most of the balls are rollouts from the front wall but as soon as we shortened it to 20 by 12 you know, we created that ratio of close to 60-40, 
you know, with 60% being dropping or bouncing balls and 40% being rollouts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everything just matched up, you know, and, you know, and for some reason that book was sent to me in the middle of that, you know, that moment in time when I could actually do something perfect because we could just fit in. It cost me a whole bunch of money to have the plans redrawn, but we could just fit in nine box soccer courts with a corridor down the middle. And it just perfectly fitted into that piece of the facility you know, alongside the small field and the big field, you know, and so it, it was just weird how it all came together at just the perfect moment, you know, and so, you know, we, we then constructed, if you remember this, we constructed a, um, a prototype box soccer court because I'd actually ordered um, a 12 foot frame and I'd ordered 10 foot frames. So I had two 10-foot frames for the sides, 12-foot frames for the ends. And so I had the ability to bolt together, uh, you know, from what should have been a 32-foot court, I could put together straight away a 20-by-12 court. So I bolted a 20-by-12 court together, put the boards on it, you know, and rigged the net up so the board didn't escape out of the top. And then we, we petri dished it. Yeah. We tested it. Yeah. And it was fantastic. You know, and the game went from being really good and really fun to being absolutely stupendous. Yeah. You know, and, you know, just, you know, for want of a better word, it was pinball soccer. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, you know, the ball's just pinballing all the way. You know, you have to think, you have to react, you have to, you know, be, be accurate. You have to, you know, read the play. You have to get out of the way of balls that are coming off the wall, you know, so that you don't lose the point. Because if the ball hits you, you lose the point. You know, and, and it had everything that the 32-foot court, court dampened down. Yep. You know, it, you know. It, all of a sudden, it was it was it, it was the you know EPL penalty area on a corner kick after a deflection. You know, and you know you're just trying to read where that ball's going and pounce on it. You know, and hit it perfectly into the corner of the net. And the defenses are trying to get there to clear it. You know, and that was the environment that was created by that one change in design. Yeah, and, and it was wonderful. And and in some ways, the name of this podcast right comes out of these box soccer courts, right? Coaching inside the box. We spend so much of our sessions for our kids in either a large box, which isn't very big, but it's a field, right, where the kids are playing one v one or two v two and going to goal and and and, and constant uh, creativity is is required. Um, or we're on a box soccer court, formerly known as a soccer squash court, where the kids are hitting shot after shot after shot after shot in in small tight spaces. And 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 what's fun is that's really outside the box thinking because apparently the rest of the American soccer coaching community have figured out that the best approach is to, to rent out half or a full field on turf, um, which is nothing like, as Fleet pointed out, uh, the Brazilian talent hotbed um, and, and how players are created. Fleet, do you want to just spend a, a minute kind of talking about your training sessions and what they look like from a um, transition from a field to the boxes? Yeah, um, Pretty much, uh, we do like 40 minutes in the field and 40 minutes in the box. The field time, we usually work on skills, um, just putting them under pressure and having them work on the skills that we've been focusing on that time. Um, then we do go through 1v1s or 2v2s, depending on uh, what stage of the curriculum they're at. And then we move them to the box soccer, which we put usually two kids in a box and and we keep track of points. Um, basically, we have a system that if they hit certain number of, of walls in a certain specific order, uh, they'll get a point and they're competing against each other. So it's good when you have um, two of them because they're competing uh, against each other. It's more challenging. 
but also whenever we put them individually they can also compete against themselves trying to break their record and it doubles it yeah and yeah. that and that doubles the repetition um but yeah we do those uh two ways we also sometimes do 1v1s into the boxes which is really hard because there's not a lot of space and which is brilliant it will force them um to try to be creative so yeah those spaces are great for um for their training yeah so, so l let me give you a comparison because I've always been one for evaluating the stats and my best ever outdoor shooting practice, first time finishing outdoor shooting practice, somewhere between 30 and 50 shots in an hour, you know, and, you know, it, it, you know, the, and it wasn't game related, you know, you couldn't put a defender in because you'd get five or six, you know, 15, 20, you know, and so <clears throat> it had to be, very dampened down compared to game circumstances to get that 30 to 50 shots in an hour. Riley Smith, who holds, as far as I know, the club record for first-time shots in a box soccer court on her own in an hour. This is 10 four-minute rounds with a two-minute break between each round. She got 1,474 shots in an hour. 30 to 50 versus 1,474. What do I want my kid doing? Yeah, month after month, the year months turn into years. So, so here's, here's the, the next evaluation process. I keep score sheets, as you know, on, on everything that I do. So I um, took uh, a year's worth of practices for my daughter, you know, and, you know, I went high side, low side to allow margin of error, you know, and I estimated for the whole year, based on all the score sheets that I had, the number of shots she'd taken in, you know, legends practices for the year. And because of our environment, you know, it was obviously, you know, off of the charts. And in one year, she had taken between 60 and 80,000 shots. Well, she's got a full ride to college, you know, and so, you know, her, she's not going to come out of college with any debt at all, you know, because, you know, she can beat player in the players in the dribble and she can score from distance, you know, and, and so... You know, and this is not a fluke, you know, and we tend to put players into college as forwards or, you know, at the very least attacking midfielders. And, you know, they're the special players that go on and, and do a tremendous job of, of helping their teams win the game because that's the type of brave, creative leader that we develop. But it comes from repetition of the key skills and getting better and better and better. And that's what's happened. You, you nail the key scale thing because I think, I think maybe the biggest issue that I see when I look at, at other coaching methodologies is that they try to teach too much, right? And so at best, players become the jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And, and deceptive dribbling and, and ball-striking shooting are, um, are enormously transferable, right? If you're a really good deceptive dribbler, you can settle the ball, right? You have a good touch. Your ability to, to, to take balls out of the air is great. If you're a really good shooter, you're also a really good passer. If you can play 1v1s or 2v2s in a really crowded area, then you can see the field. And, and, and so I think that the, the, the biggest win that we've had in terms of our training methodology and the environments in which we put these kids is that it creates players that really are specialists and focus in on one thing and they're really, really, really good at those impor most important skills, but they can also do the other stuff too, just as everybody else can. Well, the, the rocket science transfers to the everyday stuff. 
And the rocket science is, is incredible finishing and in, in the ability, you know, like a Pelé or a Ronaldinho or a Maradona to beat a player. To create space. You know, in tight spaces in front of goal, you know, to put the ball in the net. And so if you're an incredible dribbler and you're an incredible finisher, yeah, the rest of the field, you know, receiving and passing is a walk in the park. And yet most coaches spend 95% of their time on passing and receiving, you know, not recognizing that you can get both if you just work on deceptive dribbling and goal scoring, you know, and, you know, we see it in our national team, we can't dribble and we can't score. Yeah. And so yeah, that, that's a big problem of nowadays soccer because people get, go to Guardiola and say, oh, but he does the tiki-taka, one touch pass, one touch pass. But the tiki-taka only works if you have Messi, if you have the special player that will, at the point that they pass the ball around for a minute, it will isolate that player, that special player, who will do anything with the ball and will create the goal-scoring opportunity. It's not, even if you see Spain after um, they won the World Cup in 2010, which they barely did, even though they had a fantastic team, they almost did. And in the f later World Cups, they didn't do very well because they couldn't do anything different when they got to the attacking third. Against Russia in the last World Cup, they had 79% possession and they lost the game because they couldn't score. They, they got score. to that attacking third and couldn't do anything. Look at the EPL right now. You know, who is it that's taken a, you know, Man Man Manchester City to the cleaners right now? It's Liverpool. But look at their forward line. Yeah. You know, you know, you've got three great dribblers, goal scorers in their forward line. So, you know, they've got those special players that can do it on their own as well as combine with each other to do amazing things and great finishers. You know, and so you know, that's what it takes. And, you know, we go back to this defense wins games garbage again, don't we? You know, it does not. <laughs> yeah, it's zero, zero. You know? Yeah, instead of developing the Messi, who actually wins the game, they try to develop the other 10 players yeah, yeah. who make Messi possible. Here's the interesting thing. You know, if you look at uh, Liverpool's squad, you know, throughout his squad, you know, even the big guy at the back, Virgil, is a good dribbler. You know, he's very talented with the ball on the floor. So he hasn't just gone for the big donkey that could clears the ball. And Pep says that himself. He says the first thing I look for in the back is somebody that can somebody dribble. Somebody that can dribble. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it's two fullbacks. Yeah. Unbelievable at getting forward, getting into the attacking third, scoring goals, you know, creating goals. You know, and, and so from every position on the field, they've got dribblers and goal scorers that can you know, actually make a huge difference. Yeah, and, and so for those of you guys listening... I, you know, we just talked about the the evolution from a training perspective, and 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 moving toward uh, walled training only, uh, because our club only trains inside, and that's somebody that grew up training in this methodology in this curriculum, but at least half the year outside. I only train my teams inside because it's so much more efficient, and and the the quality of players that are coming from my teams is significantly greater than the teams I had eight years ago that trained half the year out outside. I mean, significant. It is so obvious it's it's um uh, it can't be missed and there's uh, one other thing the sun always shines on indoor soccer <laughs> I, i've been now years and i've not canceled a single practice until covid 19 yeah i, I hadn't canceled a single practice in years you know and i was canceling 15 20 percent you know on, on a year-round basis in the spring yeah 50 percent 
Yeah. Here in Kansas City with all the thunderstorms, you know, the cancellations, you know, and lots of coaches, you know, that aren't that committed actually used to love to cancel their games so they could have a night off. Yeah. You know, I'm the other guy. I'm the guy that didn't ever want to cancel and totally frustrated when the weather would prevent me from coaching. Yeah, 100%. You know, and, and so we never have to cancel, you know. So our coaches work harder, but, you know, hey, we got the, the right guys. They love to work harder. Yeah, and and so we, we we started with one indoor facility in Lenexa, Kansas. And then we had two in Lenexa and Miriam, and then we and then we moved into a new, bigger, uh, uh, not newer, older building, but a bigger one that now has sixty box soccer courts or so, fifteen different fields, all various sizes and shapes. And we'll spend episodes talking about that, and then expanded onto the Missouri side, and we have two uh, facilities as well with multiple box soccer courts and multiple fields on in Lee Summit. And then as well, we've now got a. Uh, TSB facility, the soccer box facility in Dallas, Texas, soon to be Houston, Texas, um, St. Louis, Omaha, uh, Northwest Arkansas, uh, Connecticut. And so we're seeing this grow really where we're seeing more and more box soccer courts and a greater recognition that 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 uh, as Andy learned from or Matthew Syed learned from looking at Desmond Douglas's background, that 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 small, tight spaces improve the ability of the athlete to take in information and predict what's going to come next. And, and this, the provision of these indoor facilities for the kids in communities around the country is absolutely vital because unless we do this, the kids are not going to get the street soccer environments of years gone by. You know, those are gone. Cars have destroyed those environments. So it's vital that we actually create small, tight, fast spaces, you know, and the philosophy that goes with it, which of course we have, you know, and it's vital that coaches all over this country, all over the world do it if the kids are going to truly make this once again the beautiful game because it's slowly losing that beautiful game designation because we're cookie cutting kids tactically uh, you know out of these insipid environments that do not really challenge the kids in small spaces to be absolutely incredibly brilliant so it's just not as entertaining as it was it comes back to this ongoing theme from episode to episode we we in america especially but all across the world as well have to manufacture creativity we have to create opportunities for creativity to flourish. It's not organic. Yeah, we have to man- manufacture the environment. Yep. You know, of course, and if we're good enough at structuring the environment so that the content is the best content for also promoting creativity, once you put together the culture, the environment, uh, the, um, the coaching philosophy, and the Brave Creative Leadership for Life training, you've got it all. But it has to be designed that way. You know, and this is decades in the making. We've written books about it, you know, and, you know, we've designed the perfect environment, you know, for developing that. Not the perfect. There's always improvements that that can be made. But I think we're in the last, you know, 5%, you know, of of, it's it's 95% perfect is what I'm saying. You know, we've done it for so long and we've spent so much money and we've analyzed it to such an incredible degree. Now we need to reproduce this all over, you know, North America, you know, before I die, I want to see the USA win a World Cup. You know, my adopted country, I'm now an American, you know, I took citizenship, and that's my ambition. England's already won one. I'd love to see them win another, but I'd like to see the USA win one. Not happening. You know, yeah, I don't think it is happening. You know, but, you know, the USA is further down the pike than England. You know, yeah. the England's better than the USA by far right now. So how do we win that World Cup? We've got to create these deceptive dribblers, goal scorers, these leaders that, that want the ball all the time, that think they can make the difference, that are hungry to make the difference. 
And we're not going to do it on these wide open, you know, desert complexes that we're putting in all over the place. Great for games, terrible for learning. Yep, yep, 100%. Well, guys, thanks again for uh, following along on this uh, uh, Coaching Inside of the Box episode podcast journey. Um, but again, I can't reiterate enough, any rate or review uh, you could provide us wherever you listen to this podcast would be super uh, appreciated. Guys, thanks again. Great, great show. All right. Thanks, thanks again, Andrew.